Feminists were the ones to revive the word gender because they wanted to separate the discussion of sexuality from other non-sexual aspects of male-female differences in relations. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, last week we talked about a lot of the uh, entries that you had that actually were not errors, even though your book is Common Errors in English Usage. We just want to talk about usage in general and there are a lot of terms that people throw around and think are errors. They think they're being sophisticated if they call them errors, but it's not always the case. One of the first points of entry that people find on your site is your non-errors page. Right. And a lot of these have to do with grammar. Now, um, when people think about the sort of thing that we're engaged in here with common errors in English usage, uh, they don't usually use the word usage. They use the word grammar. And uh, I guess you could say that in non-specialized English, grammar is a kind of general term for all kinds of things to do with language. But that's not the way that professionals uh, working with language talk about it. Grammar has to do with the structure of sentences and uh, it has to do with tenses um, and dependence of one uh, word on another and so on. They're very technical things. And the vast majority of the things that we talk about have nothing to do with grammar. Mm -hmm. Often they're just using the wrong word or the wrong spelling or some other kind of mistake. I noticed that, yeah, in reading your book, I don't think I ever came across even the most rudimentary definition of a subject and a predicate, which is where my English class started in seventh grade, I think. I deliberately avoided that. I know that the people who are going to have the most trouble with uh, writing this kind of thing, and the simpler the error, the more important it is to avoid technical terminology. My job is not to be a substitute grammar teacher and tell you all uh, the technicalities, but to try to explain it in lay language that just about anybody could understand. At least that's what I try to do. Well, let's try to do some at least some simplistic glossing of a couple of grammar terms as we move along. Uh, because the first one I want to talk about today is the split infinitive. And just to define it quickly, uh, an infinitive is a form of a verb. Uh, tell me when I start going off the rails here. Uh, that uses the word to in front of it. So to walk, to run, those are infinitives. Is that about right? Right. It's kind of an odd fit for English, actually. Um, in many European languages... Uh, it, the infinitive form has an ending on the verb that makes it the infinitive. Uh, so, uh, let me think of a word. Um, so, marché is M-A-R-C-H-E-R is the French word for walk. And obviously related to our word march. And But you wouldn't use the infinitive most of the time. You'd say, j'ai marché, A-I-S would be on the end. Um, and marche, if you were telling somebody uh, in a very brusque way, M-A-R-C-H-E, and um, marche, s'il vous plaît, <laughs> walk if you please, um, 
would be M-A-R-C-H-E-Z. So the infinitive form is the one with the E-R on the end, and there are lots of other forms for the verb. In English, we have a much simpler kind of structure for verbs. We usually have a present tense, a future tense, and a past tense. Whereas in other languages, a conditional tense, like uh, what I wish you would do, uh, if you could go, etc. We use it by adding words like could and should and so on, instead of putting endings on the word. And in the more common words, or common verbs, uh, often the past participle and the past are the same in spelling of the verb. So the verb form doesn't uh, vary that much. And when you get to infinitives, yeah, we usually just put a two on the front. To go, to walk, to see, to look. And so it's extremely simple. The problem comes about because some grammarians, uh, some people date it back to the 17th century, who were working mainly with Latin, thought that this is kind of an abomination in English, that where in, in Latin, uh, the infinitive is a single word all by itself, and obviously can't be divided into two pieces and separated with something else in between it. And they developed this notion that to insert another word between the two and the verb was a mistake. And the way I began this entry was, for the hypercritical, to boldly go where no man has gone before should be to go boldly, because the boldly is inserting itself in between the two and the go. Uh, it's good to be aware that inserting one or more words between two and a verb is not, strictly speaking, an error. It is often more expressive and graceful than moving the intervening words elsewhere. But so many people are offended by split infinitives that it is better to avoid them except when the alternative sounds strained and awkward. Now, I'm not talking about speech here so much as writing and mainly writing for publication. English is full of split infinitives in normal usage. It's just the most natural thing to do. It is very natural. And I'm not sure that there is a copy editor working today that really pays attention to trying to keep uh, keep infinitives from being split. But there may be times when unsplitting the infinitive actually is an improvement. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for split infinitives, and there's a nice quote from Raymond Chandler, if I could have him give him a word. Yeah, maybe you could explain a little bit who he is for people that aren't detective fans. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so Raymond Chandler was the author of this series of detective novels that featured Philip Marlowe. These have been filmed as uh, The Big Sleep, um, Farewell, My Lovely. He didn't write an extensive number of novels, but it almost seems like every one that he wrote was made into a movie. Is that yeah, more than once, usually. Yeah, more than once, usually, yeah. So um, he was writing to an editor of the Atlantic Monthly and had this to say about his split infinitives. Now, is this in response to his having written something for them that they then corrected? He submitted a story to them. Uh, they were set to publish the story, but an editor had gone through and rewritten his split infinitives to take the words out from between them. And this is what can happen to you if a masterly writer like Raymond Chandler gets hold of some poor copy editor. So he wrote, uh, by the way, would you convey my compliments to the purist who reads your proofs and tell him or her that I write in a sort of broken down patois, which is something like the way a Swiss waiter talks. 
and that when I split an infinitive, God damn it, I split it so it will remain split. And when I interrupt the velvety smoothness of my more or less literate syntax with a few sudden words of barroom vernacular, this is done with the eyes wide open and the mind relaxed and attentive. The method may not be perfect, but it is all I have. Yeah. That was pretty moderate, actually. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to read anything that's too explicit. But I'm sure that uh, under their breaths, a lot of authors have, have complained to editors about this. If it is held on to, though, it may be held on to by, by certain editors who learned something or thought they learned something that was useful in here and, oh, we'll just teach these writers how to, how to get it correct. Right. I think... I'm a little more conscious about it than I might be because uh, in writing a site called Common Errors in English Usage, I get the pickiest people in the world reading my prose. And if I split an infinitive, I'm going to hear about it. Well, sure. <laughs> if they have heard about it from someplace that uh, taught them that. The thing is that they, they don't usually learn that from reading people who write books on grammar or on usage. Um, it's usually their teacher or their mother or you know somebody else that just passed this on as an oral tradition. It gives people a feeling that they know something special, that they have this, this mysterious term, split infinitive. What is that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense in English because the infinitive already has a space in between the two and the verb, so inserting another word in there doesn't entirely constitute a split but eh, it's just annoying when people talk about it yeah i'm glad that we are we can still say to boldly go and that's the way it goes and we don't have to worry about it uh right along the same lines um another old rule that people like to throw around still to this day uh, occasionally i guess is ending a sentence with a preposition even though the story about winston churchill which is not true, by the way, but it's good It's good enough to serve its purpose to show how absurd the rule is. The first thing to say about ending a sentence with a preposition is just close your ears when somebody says don't do this. If it sounds right, do it. Um, this is a fine example of an artificial rule which ignores standard usage. The famous witticism usually attributed to Winston Churchill makes the point well. This is the sort of English up with which I will not put. And then when I wrote that, I got tons of mail from people saying, oh, well, I know what the original saying was. And uh, so I finally said, okay, I'm going to have to do a supplementary page just addressing this, debunking the history of it. And I did a lot of research. And so here's my page on Churchill on prepositions. And Churchill is in quotation marks. <laughs> the saying attributed to Winston Churchill, rejecting the rule against ending a sentence with a preposition, must be among the most frequently mutated witticisms ever. I have received many notes from correspondents claiming to know what the, quote, original saying, unquote, was, but none of them cites an authoritative source. The Alt-English Usage FAQ states that the story originated with an anecdote in Sir Ernest Gower's Plain Words, 1948. Supposedly, an editor had clumsily rearranged one of Churchill's sentences to avoid ending it in a preposition, and the Prime Minister, very proud of his style, scribbled this note in reply. This is the sort of English up with which I will not put. 
The FAQ goes on to say that the Oxford Companion to the English Language, no edition cited, states that the original was, quote, this is the sort of bloody nonsense up with which I will not put. To me, this sounds more likely an eagerness to avoid the offensive word bloody would help to explain the proliferation of variations. By the way, I don't think most Americans have a clue how uh, rude the word bloody is in English. We're so used to hearing characters in movies say it and so on. A quick search of the internet turned up an astonishing number of variations. In this era of copy and paste, it's truly unusual to find such rich variety. The narrative context varies too. Sometimes the person rebuked by Churchill is a correspondent, a speech editor, a bureaucrat, or an audience member at a speech. And sometimes it is a man, sometimes a woman, sometimes even a young student. Sometimes Churchill writes a note, sometimes he scribbles the note on the corrected manuscript, and often he is said to have spoken the rebuke aloud. The text concerned was variously a book manuscript, a speech, an article, or a government document. Here's just a sample of the variation circulating on the net. That is a rule up with which I will not put. This is the kind of errant pedantry up with which I will not put. This is the type of errant pedantry up with which I will not put. Not ending a sentence with a preposition is a bit of errant pedantry up with which I will not put. That is the sort of nonsense up with which I will not put. This is insubordination, comma, up with which I will not put, exclamation point. This is the sort of nonsense up with which I will not put. This is the sort of thing up with which I will not put. Madam, that is a rule up with which I shall not put. One poor soul, unfamiliar with the word errant, A-R-R-A-N-T, came up with, that is the sort of E-R-R-A-N-T criticism up with which I will not put. Then there are those who get it so scrambled it comes out backward. Ending a sentence with a preposition is something up with which I will not put. Ending a sentence with a preposition is something up with which we will not put. From now on, ending a sentence with a preposition is something up with which I will not put. Please understand that ending a sentence with a preposition is something up with which I shall not put. I checked the indexes of a dozen Churchill biographies but none of them had an entry for prepositions. And by the way, this was in a real library with real books. <laughs> ben Zimmer has presented evidence on the Alt Usage English site um, that this story was not originally attributed to Churchill at all, but to an anonymous official in an article in the Strand magazine. Since Churchill often contributed to the Strand, Zimmer argues, it would certainly have identified him if he had been the official in question. It is not clear how the anecdote came to be attributed to Churchill by Gowers, but it seems to have circulated independently earlier. Well, if you're quoting Churchill, I, I think the point of that quote is not that Churchill said it in any of those particular ways, um, but it really is a, a nice witticism. Yeah, except I've seen uh, sophisticated, complex grammatical analyses that are beyond my abilities, uh, arguing that uh, it's really some other structure rather than a preposition at the end. So I don't know. <laughs> anyway. That's right. Yep, I've seen that too. 
<laughs> and this is all covered pretty thoroughly um, in one of our other publications, Far From the Matting Gerund, uh, which features a couple of Ben Zimmer pieces uh, about this, lengthier pieces about this. But yes, I agree. That's enough about that. <laughs> Let's move on. But that's ending a sentence. What about beginning a sentence with not with a preposition, but with a conjunction? This is less common. I think you see it mostly in uh, teachers who are grading papers will sometimes tell students not to do this. And they can't be teachers who have a lot to do with fiction because there's nothing more common in fiction than starting, especially in theater and plays and so on. It offends those who wish to confine English usage in a logical straitjacket that writers often begin sentences with and or but. True, one should be aware that many such sentences would be improved by becoming clauses in compound sentences, but there are many effective and traditional uses for beginning sentences thus. One example is a reply to a previous assertion in a dialogue. But my dear Watson, the criminal obviously wore expensive boots or he would not have taken such pains to scrape them clean. Make it a rule to consider whether your conjunction would repose more naturally within the previous sentence or would lose in useful emphasis by being demoted from its position at the head of a new sentence. And I think the writing point there is use it sparingly. Is that fair enough to say? Yeah, I would think so. But it's especially good for emphasis when you may want to make a sharp turn or emphasize a new stage of something. For instance, you've been talking about... Um, it's been raining a lot here lately, and the ground has got completely soaked. And this morning, a huge tree fell down because its roots had been loosened. What actually happened this morning? <laughs> yeah. Right across the road. So that and, you could make that all one sentence, no problem. But it makes it more emphatic to start a new sentence and use and. In theater and speech, uh, you'll see these kinds of structures all the time because that's the way people talk. Mm -hmm. Just as silly as it is to say, begin your sentence with a conjunction all the time because it's okay. It's just as silly as saying, never begin a sentence with a conjunction. It's wrong. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, uh, here's another one that I've heard over the years quite a bit, um, and I still somewhat honor this myself, but I understand that uh, it's not. It's in the category of because a word is derived from a certain meaning or the etymology goes a certain way, doesn't mean that's how it really gets used all the time. So we're talking about using between when you're talking about two things or among for more. But that's not really an error, huh? No. And I'd like to also say that we are now distinguishing between Grammar errors and usage errors. This one has to do with what word you choose, and that's not a matter of grammar. Mm -hmm. The tween in between is clearly linked to the number two, but as the Oxford English Dictionary notes, in all senses, between has, from its earliest appearance, been extended to more than two. We're talking about Anglo-Saxon here, early. Pedants have labored to enforce among when there are three or more objects under discussion, but largely in vain. Very few speakers naturally say a treaty has been negotiated among Britain, France, and Germany. I've had people write me and say, that's exactly how I would say it. That's the only sensible way. The problem with among in that context for me 
is it, it doesn't sound like a negotiation. It sounds like people sort of um, chatting with each other, you know, something going on, on among some people. It emphasizes the sharedness of it, whereas between sets up more of an adversarial position so that it's more like a serious negotiation. That's my feeling about it. Well, in any case, um, we're going to set that one aside as a non-error. So if you're using between and you're talking about more than two people, but it feels like that's the way you want to put it, you're not wrong. It's not a misuse. Yeah. And if you're a tween who is 11 years old, uses it, you don't have to correct them. Okay. <laughs> Good. Now, here's one. Now, I remember, Can I, I'll just tell a story quickly. When I first came across your book, it was handed to me as a manuscript to edit. And, uh, and uh, you know, naturally, I didn't do this entirely on my own. It's always good to have another person working on it. And one of the people I was working with on your manuscript announced at some point she was in the middle of reading something and said to me, this is great because there are all kinds of things that I didn't know people complained about. (laughs) (laughs) And one of them was over versus more than. I never knew that this was a gripe that some people have, but you can explain how this goes. I don't think there's uh, nearly the number of people that object to this as the ones we've been talking about previously, but you do run into it sometimes. Some people claim that over cannot be used to signify more than, as in over a thousand baton twirlers marched in the parade. Over, they insist, always refers to something physically higher, say the blimp hovering over the parade route. This absurd distinction ignores the role metaphor plays in language. If I write one on the blackboard and 10 beside it, 10 is still the higher number. Over has been used in the sense of more than for over a thousand years. This never occurred to me that there would be that kind of distinction between those two. I like this next one. I think it's useful to keep in mind. And this is using the word gender versus sex when you're talking about the two sexes. And this one's a little, got a fine line here. Yeah, and I must say that I've gotten a little feedback occasionally from people Uh, thinking that I'm being anti-feminist in this. Um, I'd like people to know that I have been a uh, 40-year member of NOW, and I used to be the secretary of the local NOW chapter. I consider myself a feminist, um, but I do know that the feminists have had quite an influence on language usage, and this is one instance where clearly feminism is partly responsible, and I'm not saying they're bad people or anything. Feminists eager to remove references to sexuality from discussions of females and males not involving mating or reproduction revived an older meaning of gender, which had come to refer in modern times chiefly to language as a synonym for sex in phrases such as, our goal is to achieve gender equality. Americans always nervous about sex eagerly embrace this usage, which is now standard. In some scholarly fields, sex is now used to label biologically determined aspects of maleness and femaleness, reproduction, etc., while gender refers to their socially determined aspects, 
behavior, attitudes, etc. But in ordinary speech, this distinction is not always maintained. It is disingenuous to pretend that people who use gender in the new senses are making an error, just as it is disingenuous to maintain that Ms. means manuscript. That's capital M, capital S, no period. Nevertheless, I must admit I was startled to discover that the tag on my new trousers describes not only their size and color, but their gender. <laughs> that last example does move it forward a little bit into something a little questionable, but using gender in this way is not a mistake. It's not a mistake, but it's a little pretentious and, you know. Um, I'd like to do a little analysis of my own language here because the, maybe I, I guess only two uh, people complaining about this, that I was somehow being anti-feminist, weren't parsing what I was saying correctly. What I'm saying is feminists were the ones to revive the word of gender because they wanted to separate the discussion of sexuality, which they do discuss as well, and use the word sex, from other non-sexual aspects of male-female differences and relations. That's a useful distinction that they made, and I'm not complaining about it. And it's not that they were shy of sex that they wanted to remove. It was because they didn't want everything that had to do with men and women to have sexual language attached to it. There's a logical sense for that. Then what I go on to say is other Americans who were not necessarily engaged in the women's movement, often are dancing around words that have to do with sex, and they're very nervous about them. And so it became popular and widely adopted faster than Ms. did, um, because it seemed, oh, we don't have to use that word sex anymore. We can say gender instead when we're talking about boys and girls, men and women, and so on. So that's, I think it got overused as a result. And uh, it's just, uh, it's gotten exaggerated a good deal. Well, yeah, and that's where the trouser label comes in. And I didn't mean to say that the label on your trousers was not a mistake. I meant to say that using the word gender in this way to refer to, you know, male and female gender um, when you're not explicitly talking about sex, then um, it is a useful, actually a useful distinction and people who complain about that usage are, as you say, disingenuous to pretend that people use, yeah, are making an error. So, Well, I was particularly concerned to address the people who say this is a stupid usage, this word gender, and it's just those damn feminists' fault. And what I'm saying is, no, the feminists may have started it, but it's not the feminists' fault. It's other people who just don't want to talk about sex. If you're filling out a form at the doctor's office and you're giving all your personal data, you know, one of the things you're going to be asked about is your sex. And that's much more straightforward than saying, what's your gender? Especially in these days when gender flexibility can become, wow, very complicated. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, um, but in the case of your trousers, I do think that's a borderline error, or at least that's a just an, an oddity. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah. So now here we've uh, veered off talking about feminists and uh, the women's movement. And there's a reference to famous feminists in your next one, uh, even though it doesn't come up at f initially. We'll talk about the usage first, but then we'll talk a little bit about this quote that's in here. This is using who 
for people and using that for animals and inanimate objects. So you can't say, uh, he was someone that I met at the conference last week. And there, there's a tiny minority of people who really feel very strongly about this, that you're somehow dehumanizing people when you use that of them. In fact, there are many instances in which the most conservative usage is to refer to a person using that. All the politicians that were at the party later denied even knowing the host is actually somewhat more traditional than the more popular politicians who. An aversion to that referring to human beings as somehow diminishing their humanity may be praiseworthily sensitive, but it cannot claim the authority of tradition. In some sentences, that is clearly preferable to who. She is the only person I know of that prefers whipped cream on her granola. In the following example, to exchange that for who would be absurd. Who was it that said, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle? Mm-hmm. Just the who was it, who said, who, you know, it's, it's a little more elegant to not have the word repeated twice in that. Exactly, exactly. This quotation is almost always attributed to Gloria Steinem, who I admire greatly. Let's read the quotation one more time. A woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. But actually, Gloria Steinem was quoting an artist named Irina Dunn, and she is the actual source of the saying. And by the way, this is a bit of sarcastic witticism uh, to try to say, you know, a woman is worth something in her own right. She doesn't have to derive all her importance from a man. And Gloria Steinem has very friendly relations with lots of men, has been married, and uh, certainly dated a lot. And uh, she's not somebody who's going to say, kill all the men. (laughs) No, no. Uh, Well, okay, that leaves us talking about feminism. We started out with split infinitives. You have more non-errors that we could talk about next week. And I intend to do that. Great. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Tom. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.